Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Welcome, I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Product and Community Director, and today's podcast is with Dr. Kevin Courtright, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. Our conversation will focus on his work with teaching research methods to undergraduate students, and specifically his 2020 article, Making Methods Relevant, Undergraduate Research Methods and the Content Analysis, written with his colleague, David A. Mackey, who is a Justice and Security Cluster Professor at Plymouth State University. This was published in the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning Innovative Pedagogy, Uh, in Volume 2, Article 5. So welcome, Kevin. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a privilege to talk about my research and exciting things we do at the university. So thanks for the opportunity. So I wanted to start with, how did you get interested in qualitative research focused on criminal justice? Yeah, so this is an easy one for us, and it's an opportunity for me to plug one of my professors and and mentors that uh, we both had while at uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, uh, the late, great Bruce Berg. Uh, Bruce has been gone 12 years now, but his influence has been tremendous on us and and many of his other students, I'm sure. He was at Cal State Long Beach when he, uh, he passed on. But he was the qualitative uh, person, and he's you know this prolific author in qualitative methods, and he was always having us get out of the classroom and consider qualitative research. So we owe, I think, our interest in that and really our knowledge in that uh, to him. So like a lot of academics, however, we made a living in the quantitative camp for many years with survey research because it was quick, it was easy. So we did that. But just lately, we've been kind of returning back to the qualitative side. And undoubtedly, it's I think it's related to Bruce's influence and us seeing how it can relate to the pedagogical side of things because we're both at teaching schools. So for us, it was kind of a nice combination to see if we could work this qualitative uh, these qualitative methods into what we do already at the university. And then, of course, uh, teach it to students and all the while, hopefully, uh, keeping it relevant, you know, for them. So uh, that's kind of the uh, the short answer. And I think lately we've become more and more interested in the scholarship of teaching. So to combine the two was really kind of a win-win for us. Great. Thank you. In the article, you talk about a content analysis project, uh, and for short, CAP, that you use with your criminal justice undergraduate students. Can you sort of just describe that project for me? I'd be happy to. It's going to be a trick to do it in the time that we have, but this is a a multi-stage project that we do with the students over the course of 15 weeks. So, for instance, they have to select a data set their own choice. They develop a literature review. They develop research questions. They manage the data and then most importantly, actually perform content analysis on it. And then of course, 
all the other auxiliary components to that of, of assessing validity and reliability. They draw conclusions from the data. And for us, since it's part of a 15-week course, it's also an opportunity for us to kind of sneak in other research methods. So we teach the course at the same time as we do this project. So, But this project is, a, is really an opportunity for us to talk about things like sampling, measurement, reliability and validity, things like that as well. So kind of a neat combination of things. And this project allows students to either work by themselves or with partners. And a lot of students like that flexibility because some are opposed and have had bad experiences with with colleagues or partners in the past. So they'd rather work alone. So they have that option with this project. But that's the project, I think, in a nutshell. The actual assignment itself or the CAP, as you mentioned, we put that in its entirety at the end of the article in in appendices. So if you provide a link to that, your viewers or listeners ought to be able to uh, pick that up and actually see it in in its full glory and detail. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really good. I, I I read through that and it was it's very uh, laid out. So if somebody wanted to try the same type of assignment, it's it's right right there for them. Well, thank you. That was I, I that that was the journal editors. They wanted this to be as useful to people as as possible. So that was their idea. Yeah. I'm very helpful. So why did you decide? And you might have answered this a little already. Why did you decide to assign this type of project to undergraduates? First and foremost, and that's a great question. We have struggled for the past so many years as teachers of research methods to keep research methods relevant, especially for our students who are focused on occupation uh, attainment and getting out in the workforce. It's really a trick to keep our courses, courses like criminology, stats, methods, courses like that, relevant to them. So this was something that we impressed upon them, this was a method that they would likely do at some point in their careers, whether it was analyzing police arrest data, the Unabomber writings, last comments from Texas death row inmates, whatever it was, we told them this was something that they'll probably likely do at some point. So we constantly worked that relevance in there. But this was a project too that when we hit the literature for it, we realized that it's one of those high impact practices of effective pedagogy. So we were all over it. I owe my uh, gratitude to my colleague, Dave Mackey, who wrote uh, a great deal of that literature review and, and had to find out what other people were doing and so on in that regard in terms of high impact practices. So this was a project that allowed us to kind of check off many of those boxes of those high impact practices and Having said that, it's not for the faint of heart. This project is a ton of work, and you have to be able and willing to work outside of the classroom with students. If you don't have that kind of time or that desire, you might want to rethink this one. But with those components, as we'll see, it's 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 very worthwhile, I think, for everybody. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you as a former teacher and you know student myself, having those type of projects always in the end had a lot more meaning to me or my students too. So absolutely. But we were, you know, we go in scared of it because so many of our students come in with they don't want to take a course in research methods anyway. So they're they come in, you know, kicking and screaming. And 
you really have to stand on your head and pull out all the stops to say, listen, this is something that you will do a survey, you will do content analysis. So let's get you better at it. You still won't be great at it, but at least you'll be familiar at it. And so how do the students analyze the data that they collect? Well, that's a good question, especially coming from in vivo. Of course, we used, or I used in vivo, you know, to analyze the data, but we were taught in the old school ways of content analysis, and that is you first do it. So we train them in the process. So they did this by hand without the use of in vivo. Now, did they have a word and find and replace functions of a word processor and that kind of stuff? Absolutely. But for us, the process was about the old school, immersing themselves in that data, coding. So we teach them how to code, how to come up with subcategories, how to count frequencies and, and frequency counts of, as in vivo would call them, nodes, coding themes and so on. And lately, we, I started, since I have in vivo, I'm a user of it, I, I brought it in on my laptop and would actually show them in the classroom, look, here's how we do it. And that visual was very, very useful for some of our students to see me highlighting a code and tossing it over in a, a content area that we created. Then they kind of got it. So, so you, you need that visual. But what did they use? They used the old faction content analysis process. And the data they collected it, it from reading the article, you used sources that were already out there, right? Because of, you know, you mentioned the IRB with under, you know, yes. to be a hard process for a course. So maybe explain that a little, because I, I thought that was um, interesting. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, and we struggled with this one and there's a lot of stuff out there that's publicly available. And of course, some of it is, is not good. Some of it is not strong. And we realized that there were limitations with some of the data like YouTube comments, things like that, where there might be trolls or, or people people just chiming in to chime in and be political. But it really wasn't about, I think, the movement or the acquisition of results in science. It was about learning content analysis. And so we focused on, on that. And then you get lucky once in a while and find some really interesting sources too, like the Texas Department of Corrections that publishes their last statements of all their death row inmates. Interesting stuff right there. They could pick and choose, at least in, the, in this project that we're talking about, what data source they wanted. So if they were interested in law enforcement, they could pick a law enforcement related discussion board, YouTube video maybe, or YouTube comments. We really preferred them to use textual data for this because the video is a whole nother world and realm that would probably have taken them twice the amount of time to make good sense of. So we preferred the textual stuff. And then, of course, depending on the size of that data was an opportunity for us to say, okay, if it's too big, why don't you draw a sample of it? Um, so then we snuck in sampling and, and that kind of came to life. So this was about a project, really, that they had a lot of choice on initially, and they actually did the stuff. And that was really the key to the, the project. They actually, they learned by doing it. Otherwise, it's just words on, in a page. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. Definitely. And how did you and your colleague, David, analyze your study evaluating the content analysis project? Because that was part of that um, article too, is that you wanted yeah. to see, you know, is, is this working, right? With yeah. your students? Well, that was a big part of it. And we had two different evaluation instruments that we used. One was, and they were all based upon our course and project objectives that we had. So we tried to keep them very focused to that, but we had a... Uh, a more quantitative component that we used uh, SPSS for. I get ahead of myself there, but we had a quantitative component and then we had a qualitative component where they could offer what they like most, what they like least, and then give us recommendations. So it was really uh, a mixed methods type of effort. So, but those student evaluations were the key that drove that. So we had a quantitative component to that every semester that we taught this course and did this project. So we had four semesters worth of data. I think our N was like 75 or something like that. And then we had these anonymous feedback instruments that we created that were geared toward this assignment, part of our, you know, full student evaluation of faculty, which might not be geared toward a project such as this very well. So we created these instruments. Yes. Mm -hmm. Great. So what were the quantitative and qualitative results? I mean, you have, you show it in the article and it, I, I found them, them interesting. Well, and we, yeah, there was a lot going on there, right? That's what took the time and, and to analyze it, but we broke it down into what they liked most, what they liked least, and then suggestions for improvement. So to cut through all of that, I think, and to not spend an hour talking about it, because I don't think we have that kind of time, but The results, shockingly to us, were mostly favorable. We expected, as teachers of research methods, I think, often do, we thought we'd receive a number of negative responses and replies, especially for working them as hard as we did. So we were like, maybe we should do this more often. But mostly favorable. What they liked most about it was the fact that they thought it was fun, and this was th- these were their words, not ours, so this was interesting. They learned a lot, and they appreciated the opportunity to choose their own data set, so I thought that was interesting. So I think that was a, a piece of that puzzle that drove that like train that the cops or the police officers, law enforcement students could do something related to that, the courts people could be over here, the corrections over here, so they could choose their own data set as long as it met our criteria and made the project fly. That's what they like most about it. They also did provide some comments that of what they liked the least about it. And of course, the literature review was in that list somewhere, perhaps not surprising. I don't like writing them either. But to do it in 15 weeks, that's crunch time. So the clock is ticking right as soon as the term starts and you've got 15 weeks of clock to think about, but some others said that they found it confusing, time-consuming, that they didn't have enough time to spend on the project. So there were, you know, some some not as positive comments as well that we understood. And uh, this was, there's always some students in the class that if they just don't want to do the work, they're probably not going to be successful in, in this project. But the students that are looking for the work and look, not afraid of the work and are looking to be challenged, they just, they just run with it. I mean, 
So, but it's not a project for the faint of heart that people, that students can just kind of sit out and just ride through. With with these successive steps, you have to start with a good product to end up with a good product, right? So, and some of the students just, they always get some that just aren't, are into that or they're too busy for it or whatever. So, but overall, you know, very, very positive. They also gave us some suggestions for improvement, which at the top of that coding category was none. So that was interesting. Most of the students said, I have no suggestions for improvement. Please keep doing it. Others said, we wish we had more time to spend on the project. And we wished we had more examples given of the coding process. So something that we can improve upon in the future, certainly. We'll take a quick break from the episode. To find Kevin and David's article, go to the journal Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, Innovative Pedagogy, Fall 2020, Volume 2, Article 5, at this website, digitalcommons.humboldt.edu. Students always surprise you, don't they? Because normally you get the students that come in talking to you that aren't happy, right? And you don't hear from that silent, uh, hopefully majority that are happy. (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. (laughs) You only get the students that have prize, like working back in, in in some ways in probation where I used to work. I mean, you only hear of the problems and of how incompetent you are. You don't hear about the success stories of the people until maybe 20 years later that say, oh, geez, we got a lot out of that. And thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But that's one thing we we noticed early on that the students that just were not into it, man, from day one, they were not going to be doing this thing or didn't have time for it or whatever. Those students typically ended up not doing well. Yeah. Yeah. And you can only give them the opportunity. So (laughs) that's it. That's exactly right. So what technology did you use to analyze the data? You mentioned some already. Yeah. Well, we had SPSS because we have SPSS at at the university, you know, so of course we were, we cut our teeth on SPSS as as academics. And so we used that to, to analyze the quality, I'm sorry, the quantitative data. And you'll see the means there, I think, reported in the article. Hmm. Most of them are seven, eight out of 10, because for us, we use a 10 centimeter line as our measurement category. So that's why you'll see 10 there. So just something we learned from one of our old professors many years ago, and we've kept at it. So that's why most of those are seven or eights out of 10, but SPSS for that. And then of course, uh, in vivo for the qualitative component, which was huge. This was, you know, most of the time, uh, spent on analyzing this data, of course, was was qualitative, uh, which is what we wanted for suggestions for improvement, uh, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, and so on. I'm an in vivo owner. I, I went to training on it years ago back in Columbus, and, and I used it maybe now a couple of times a year, but so I'm just dangerous in it. Right. And so I, I know it's got more potential than what we used, but for whatever reason, I just, with three kids, I haven't found the, the time to. <laughs> You're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine. And, but one of the things I like about it, quite honestly, is that it provides a nice visual of the data. And it's a nice, you know, inner rate of reliability seems easier to, to, 
to assess using that format. I love the word clouds for those visual displays of understanding that data. Mm-hmm. So I, I realize I just am scratching the surface of it, but hopefully in the future, I'll dig a little deeper. Sounds right? good. Thank you. Thank you for the positive <laughs> comment. So would you have your students use the same technology at the undergraduate level? Well, that's an interesting one. And one of the reviewers that we had for the article said, boy, it'd be really great if you taught your students how to use NVivo during that 15-week term. With the project, at least as it's presently uh, conducted and laid out, I think I'd need another 15 weeks uh, or another course for that. So uh, the short answer to your question then is no. To first learn it, we had them do it the old-fashioned way and and walk through immersion coding, axial coding, open coding, and so on. All that stuff that we walk them through, we kind of hold their hand through that process because nobody is born knowing those things. In the future, if we were to decide as a university to to purchase in vivo and to have site licenses for it and labs that had it, I think that would be great. So who knows what the future holds? Yeah. But then, of course, COVID, the landscape has kind of changed from purchasing these things to what we can do in the classroom. So we've had to adjust a little bit, but I think we'll talk about that here in a second. So based on your results, what have you changed with the project? That's a great question because we have changed it. And part of that necessity for change, I think, was COVID-related. So all these courses went online and we were online teachers. And now we're just getting back to that. But yet things are different still. So I'm hoping for, at some point, a full return to the classroom. And this is how we do it the old-fashioned way. But that's me. I'm old-fashioned make a long story short, I have streamlined that project to a content analysis project that is simply part of one of the homework assignments of the course. So I give them the data set that everybody uses, right? So we don't have to spend weeks finding one and picking one and and, and assessing its suitability for each student. I give them a data set. I give them a research question as well and say, here we go. I still teach them about content analysis and its relevance, but it's more along the lines of somebody putting down a bunch of files on their desk one day at their job site and saying, hey, Kevin, make some sense of this. I'll be back in a week. Tell me what you found. That's the idea. So it's simply now, and I'm doing it this way, this term, one of five homework assignments that I have for the course. So we still do it but it is streamlined. And we haven't had a chance yet to, to really assess or evaluate the comparison. That was one of the things that the, the journal editors were really interested in, in practical pedagogy, was what the students would think about that compared to the full-blown assignment for 15 weeks. So mm. uh, we just haven't done that yet, admitted. That's on our to-do list. (laughs) Understandable, (laughs) understandable. (laughs) So my last question is, what one piece of advice would you give professors working with undergraduate students conducting methods research? I couldn't think of just one, so I have two. I hope that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Okay, very good. So the first thing is you got to have them do something. You have to have them do this stuff. So the more 
you can have them do something meaningful and relevant in terms of methods. This was the lesson that our mentor, Bruce Berg, taught us. We were out on cemetery studies. We had watch, look, and listen projects. We were outside of the classroom where qualitative methods happens. And that was a lesson from him. So it's taken us a few years, I think, to have that sink in now. But students learn best by doing, you know. So that was like the first uh, lesson here. The second one is, and we alluded to it earlier, when you challenge students, most will rise to that occasion. And that is comforting to know. It really did surprise us because we kind of go through life and and are teaching with, oh, geez, they're going to hate that. And that's a lot of work and I can't do it like that. But the students are out there really wanting that and looking for that. And so when you give that to them, most of them rise to that occasion. And they certainly did here for this project. They want to be challenged. A project like this too, especially the full project, allows them then to maybe if it's done well, and some of these have been done very well, to present that research at a university symposium or conference which is just an added plus, added line on the Vita, a great memory to take away from the university, whether they're seniors or not. So there's probably some retention benefits. There's all kinds of other benefits in terms of them being able to to then say, hey, this is a project that we did. We're proud of it. I had two, or we had two teams of, of students present this, the research from this project at our university symposium. One was, I think, a runner-up, and the other one took first place and got money from the provost. Right? Wow. Yeah. Hey, that's I mean, real we world like, right there, we right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. So it became real for us, you know, right after that. They had poster sessions of the, of the data and the results and so on. And to be fair to the other professor here who had the capstone course, these were students that did the project for me and then took it over to our capstone course, which is called Seminar in Criminal Justice, and further kind of developed it and, and, you know, got the poster sessions and so on. So that was kind of a combined effort with me and another colleague. But still, what an opportunity for them that most students wouldn't have. Did they have to do that? Absolutely not. But uh, I think they got a a lot out of it. And uh, some of these projects were just mind-blowing to me and reaffirmed my faith in the fact that students want to be challenged and they're not afraid of work. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's great. So Kevin, I just want to thank you for talking with us today. Well, thank you for this opportunity. It's always a pleasure and it's always great to talk about these, what we do because we don't get that opportunity. So thanks for having me. Thanks to those tuning in. So listeners, if you enjoyed learning more about how to make research methods relevant to undergraduates from this episode, we'd appreciate your support by rating and subscribing to the InVivo podcast. This helps us to share these amazing narratives with our research community. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about InVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacey Penna, at s.penna, P 
P-E-N-N-A at qsrinternational.com.